0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. wa ala rasulihil we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings on the Prophet peace be upon him. And we are going to go through a little bit of Al-Ghazali's uh, magnum opus, Ihya Ulumuddin and Kitab al-Ilm, so it's the book of knowledge in his book The Revival of the Religious Sciences. Now, one way to think about this is that he is framed as a mujaddid, meaning a revivalist. And what is consistent with the revivalists? They're looking at their era, and they're saying, essentially, we're practicing Islam, but we've gone off the path. And what that then means that they're prescribing is bringing everyone back to the Quran and the Sunnah. So it's fair to say that this book of 40 volumes is actually a tafsir.
1: It's
0: actually a tafsir of the Quran. Not in the style that we're used to, which is just ayah, commentary, ayah, commentary, so forth and so on. So that's what this book is. And the first book... So that's Ihya al or is that Kitab al So Ihya al would be essentially a tafsir, uh, organized into four key chapters, which we'll look at, and then each of those key chapters has 10 sub-chapters. So 40 books. Each of those books is anywhere from 50 to 200 pages, wow. written in a very, very short period of time. And so what is he doing? He's giving a complete picture of Islam. Right? There is an abridged version that he himself has abridged uh, that's also available in its original language, Arabic, as well as uh, in translation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And he's also, this is written more for scholars, right? Uh, But he also has a book, a version of this, which is written for the masses called Kimya Sa'ada, so Alchemy of Happiness, right? And so that was written in Farsi because that was the normal language at the time. Today it would be English. And there, he doesn't give the proofs for, for what he's saying. Here, as you're going to see, it's hadith upon hadith upon hadith, giving proofs, proofs. For, for his stances, right? Now, one thing he does in his era <coughs> is that he merges fiqh with the sawaf. Okay. So fiqh, as you know from class, is focused on, Islamic laws, focus on your actions. The sawaf, the way of the Sufis, is focused on your heart. So
2: he's, he's focused on both? Or he's,
0: he's merged them both uh, into one. Yeah and that's one of like the, the, the big things that he did in, in a book like this. So he will talk about the fiqh, but he's also gonna talk about the spirituality as though they are inseparable. Uh, okay. Right? Like the spirituality
2: the, behind the
0: rulings. Yeah, the spirituality behind the rulings as well as the spirituality of the benefits of, of the actions. Right. So having said that, um, this book itself is about a thousand years old. It's still read today. It's still a source of curricula for many Muslim societies. Uh, across the world. Even within a hundred years after it was written, there were some places where they were burning it, saying this is Bidah. So in Spain, we often talk about the good part of Spain, we don't talk about the bad part of Muslim Spain, Mm -hmm. where a lot of books were getting burnt for being essentially uh, labeled as Bidah or Kufr and all those things. Uh, But yeah, it has survived the test of time. And so let's jump uh, right into it. So go to the uh, introduction, Uh, yeah, right there, and just start... uh,
2: Allah. In the name of Allah the merciful the compassionate first I praise Allah continuously through the praise of the, of the fervent does not do justice to his glory second I invoke the blessing of Allah upon his apostle the lord of mankind as well as upon the messengers third I ask his help having resolved to write a book on the revival of the religious sciences fourth I proceed to enlighten you you who are the most self-righteous and those who reject belief, and you who are the most immoderate of the thoughtless unbeliever, okay. unbelievers.
0: So this is a normal way to begin, right? A discourse. You begin first with praise of Allah, second with blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. And then he is giving his intentions. Right? So that would be the Ammabad part, mm. right? And look in particular what he's saying about Allah Ta'ala. First Hamd to Allah, mm-hmm. abundant Hamd, mm-hmm. okay? And then he is saying no matter how much we praise him, it is never going to reach what his Majesty, what is due to his majesty. Right? And so that is a statement of humility.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? And then in terms of the prophet, peace be upon him, he calls him the leader of mankind, okay. right? which I think we all get. And he's also seeking blessings on the rest of the messengers. Mm-hmm. And then he is praying for success in his book. And then he is saying my goal with the book. So he's asking for success in writing the book. But it's also success in the goal, which is what? It's that those of you who are trying to be righteous, rejecting belief, and who are really focused on transforming your own self, uh, I hope that this book gives you benefit.
2: So when he says thoughtless unbelievers, is that... What is, who, who's he so thoughtless
0: unbelievers would be basically people who are actively kafir. Okay. So one point to think about, uh, which we've done in previous classes, is kafir is not the same as non-Muslim. Right. In the legal sense, kafir is the same as being a non-Muslim. In the spiritual sense, a kafir is someone who feels compelled to turn to Allah and suppresses it, which means most everyone who is non-Muslim might be jahil, right? Um, and even jahil is a, is a tough word, why do you say khayyar Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. But a kafir is someone who actually felt compelled. So why we call the people at the time of, of the Prophet peace be upon him kafir, because they recognize the truth right before their eyes, and they got it from the Prophet peace be upon him, and then they're saying no, right? Whereas today, someone may not really get the message very well, so it's very. We have to be very cautious about calling them coffer. Okay. So that's that's uh, how we'd understand his use of Koffer over here. Hmm. Okay, let's go to the next paragraph. All right.
2: I am no longer obliged to remain silent because the responsibility to speak, as well as warn you, has been imposed upon me by your persistent staying, straying from the tr- clear truth, and by your insistence upon fostering evil, flattering ignorance, and stirring up opposition against him who, in order to conform to the dictates of knowledge, deviates from custom and the established practice of men.
0: Okay, so let's, well, there's a lot being said here. All
2: right.
0: <clears throat> so I'm no longer obliged to remain silent. Now, what is the point here? You should speak good or remain silent. Right? And also in terms of his history, he basically, he had the top teaching position in Baghdad, which was essentially the top teaching position in the world, okay. to the point that more scholars would attend his class than his students. Like okay. the students had trouble getting seats because scholars were attending. And he reached this crisis of faith, which we can get into later on, and so he just walked out of his position mm. and just went on this big search mm. for, for real answers. And he basically just became anonymous for a long time. Right, traveling, he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. So he's from he's from what is modern day Iran, a place called Tuz. and he spent time in Nesapur, which is modern day Iran. Went to Baghdad, went to Jerusalem, um, and was even he took positions like as like you know a sweeper in a masjid and stuff like that. Okay. Right, uh, but then finally he reached the point where he says, okay, I can't be quiet anymore. I have to address what's going on in the world right now. Mm. Right.
2: So this is after that.
0: Yeah, this is after that. I mean, he only lived to be about fifty-eight years old, okay, give or take. All right. So what does he say? No longer obliged to remain silent because the responsibility to speak has been imposed upon me. Okay. Is and this relates to a conversation you and I had, right? Like, uh, uh, I don't like giving public speeches. I uh, I'm very cautious about teaching classes because I don't want to engage in ifak in hypocrisy, mm. but I also don't have the permission to say silence, mm. right? Because me but remain silent would be greater damage. Right. It doesn't mean that I'm not causing damage, may Allah protect us from, from those things. Um, but yeah, a lot of times we don't have permission to remain silent. So we have a responsibility to speak up. Exactly. Yeah. So then what he says to warn you uh, has been imposed on me by your persistent blindness to the true state of divine reality. So what is that basically saying? He's saying that you've gotten so caught up on fiqh that you've lost sight of the big picture. And this is something that happens. Like, for example, in the case of Islamic finance, again, in class we talked about this a bit, that I can make a transaction look certified legal from a fiqh perspective, and yet it is complete exploitation. Mm. Right? You know, we talk about the form and the spirit. And so when we spoke about Islamic finance, that part of the goal is that it has to be fair to, to, to the people involved. Okay. And so if I only focus on fiqh, then I'm just making sure all the rules are followed. Mm-hmm. And yet, it could totally be anti-Islamic. Okay. Right? Yeah. And so, what happens, in in his language, what is happening is that when you focus too much on the you're losing sight of what reality actually is. So, which part is this? This is where he says, um, your persistence in blindness to the true uh, state of divine reality. He says, and your insistence on fostering evil, which is also the same thing. If you're getting disconnected from reality, then... You're gonna look at the world according to whatever your agenda is. So either you have iman in Allah, which means you're gonna focus on sincerity to Allah, and Allah is judge, or you may call yourself Muslim, but you actually have iman in something else. You have faith, trust in something else. And if it's something other than Allah, then by definition, it's going in the wrong direction, right? Stirring up opposition against anyone who, in order to conform to the dictates of knowledge, deviates from custom and established practices of men. What else also happens is that when you get caught up, uh, when you lose sense of the big picture, knowledge becomes rivalry, Mm. right? To the point that you start excommunicating people actually or just in your mind that, okay, that person belongs to that school. They're wrong. They may as well be coffers and such, right? To the point that you might even lead people against them. And this was something that was happening at the time of Imam Imam al hazawi In one of his last books, he even says that people are using my books to do this. Mm -hmm. They're using my books to excommunicate people. And so then he starts saying, okay, if someone believes in Allah, the Prophet, peace be upon him, the last day, you cannot call them a kafir. Right. Right? You know, other definitions like if they're ahl al-qibla, meaning if they follow the same qibla we do, you can't call them a kafir. Right? Even though you might see secondary, tertiary things that you believe are wrong in terms of aqidah.
2: But if it's like a, like a primary... If it's a primary thing, that's different. Okay.
0: Yeah. And even then you have to be careful mm-hmm. because a lot of times we follow the beliefs that we're just born into. Mm-hmm. Right? So people often just don't even know any better. Mm-hmm. So that's different than the scholars versus the lay people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So... <clears throat> okay, continue. In doing this... Uh, where's, where's...
2: In doing this, he fulfills God's prescription for fu- purifying the self and reforming the heart thus somewhat redeeming a life which has already been dissipated in despair of prevention and remedy and avoids by it the company of him who the lawgiver, Muhammad sallam, described when he said, the most severely punished of all men on the day of resurrection will be a learned man whom Allah has not blessed with his knowledge.
0: Okay, that's pretty scary, isn't it, that last part? Now think about what that's saying. Like We often have the teaching that if Allah loves you, he'll give you wisdom or he'll give you knowledge of the deen. And a lot of times we understand that to mean that, okay, if Allah's giving me knowledge, that means he loves me. No. If he's giving me knowledge and I'm not acting on it, that's the opposite of love. Mm. If he's giving me the wisdom to act on the knowledge, even if it's one ayah, then that's a sign that he loves mm. me. See the difference? So one is just gaining facts. The other is actually acting upon your knowledge.
2: So knowledge without action is potentially like harmful?
0: It can potentially send you to hell. That's, that's, right. I mean, that's this hadith at the end the person most severely chastised in the Day of Judgment.
2: So knowledge with wisdom leads to action.
0: So it should, yeah. Or that's a sign of the wisdom. What is the ultimate wisdom? This is from Surah Luqman, gratitude. Right. And this is, this is the thing about the Sahaba, that you will find narrations among the Sahaba where they didn't want to learn something because they'd be responsible for it. And I mean, think about how long it took for Omar, may Allah be pleased with him, to master al-Baqarah. Right. Right? It took <laughs> a long, long time. Yeah. And so, so that's the last part of this ayah. And then what was he speaking about in the middle? Okay, the goal is purifying yourself, reforming the heart. And that's what we said, that's what the sawaf is about. That's what the Sufi way is about. A lot of times the Sufis get, you know, viewed according to the worst, like the goofy pupil. But here, orthodox, for lack of a better term, Sufism is basically about purifying the heart. So that you can have a clean connection to Allah, Ta'ala, mm-hmm. right? Thus, if you're someone who almost feels like you've given up, you've, you have no hope because you're so deep and lost, this is also to revive that person, too.
2: So isn't, like, tisawuf, like, I mean, it's basically, I mean, it's part of, like, the deen. It's like, tazkiah. It's tazkiah, right? Yeah. So why is it called tisawuf?
0: I mean, there's a lot of historical reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been periods of times where you'd have an Islamic uh, government, uh, yet you technically couldn't really practice Islam. So you gave it other names. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, reasons like that. Mm-hmm right, that it allowed you to practice Islam without calling it Islam. And, yeah, and that's why some people feel more comfortable calling it Ihsan, Mm. right? It is essentially Ihsan. Mm. Gotcha. Uh, Okay, next paragraph. All right.
2: Um, So, next paragraph? Or the next, 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 it can be Okay. Uh, the mo- uh, So he said that. For by my life there is no reason for your abiding arrogance except the malady which has beca- become an epidemic among the multitudes.
0: Okay, so think about how seriously he's saying this. It's almost like he's saying Wallahi, right? I yeah. swear on my soul. Yeah. And, and there is this sickness that has gone through the masses. So even think about it today. So when we think about why so many Muslims seem to be off the path. Mm. It's one thing to say that we're all bad, we just need to practice Islam, everything's uh, everything's Mm. solved. But the real issue is to figure out, okay, what is it that's making all this happen? So we might say, okay, you have access to all these inappropriate things on the internet Mm. that you have in your hand, but that's not even it. It's, what is it that's making me desire to go to those things? And so each generation of Muslims has to figure out those answers. You have to figure out how to practice Islam in your time Mm to make it something easy for everybody to do hmm. which means you have to figure out what are the sicknesses of your time. So the sicknesses of your generation will be a bit different than the sicknesses of my generation mm-hmm. and that's one of the challenges because by the time I might figure out the answers it's already too late. right? So it means we also have to look towards the future to see where things are going. Okay. So he's saying that there's this deep malady among the masses.
2: Okay. Okay, um, so the malady consists in not discerning this matter's importance, the gravity of the problem and the seriousness seriousness of the crisis, in not seeing that life is waning and that we what is to come is close at hand and death is imminent, but that the journey is still long and that the provisions are scanty, the dangers are great, and the road blocked. The perceptive know that only knowledge and works devoted to God avail.
0: Okay, so what is he saying is the malady? And this he can apply to almost every generation. People don't realize that the next life is real. And it's racing towards you. Mm. Right? You know, like we, we often speak about Surah Al-Asr, that I swear by the passage of time, mankind is in loss, except for the one who's doing one, two, three, four. Mm. Right? So, even as you and I sit right now, <clears throat> the Day of Judgment is racing towards me. Mm. It's racing towards you. And then, what does that mean? It means the dunya that I'm in, it's, it's vanishing. So, think of all the efforts I put into dunya, the only thing that's going to last is knowledge and work devoted to Allah Ta'ala. Right? So in this world, what has weight, it's like physical things. In the next world, what has weight, it's your actions in this world. That's why even correct or incorrect things stated with the tongue can be huge, even though it takes zero calories to say. Hmm. Right. And again, this is straightforward, I think we all get this, but the point he's making is that this is the malady at that time, that they've gotten so immersed in the world that then they've gotten so immersed in fiqh. Hmm. And thus, as a result, they've lost a the sense of reality, which means the day of judgment doesn't seem real to them.
2: And it's become more about, like, I am more knowledge than you. Like so that
0: becomes part of it, yeah. right? It becomes a rivalry of knowledge. But even just for the lay people, <coughs> you know, think about it this way. Think about how vivid for you tomorrow at 10 AM is. You can imagine what you're doing. You can imagine where you're going to be sitting, etc. right? Now, can you say for yourself, when you st- imagine yourself standing on the day of judgment, is it as vivid for you, hmm. right? Right, I mean, for most of it's not part of the reason, is because tomorrow you're also part of a routine, right? You know, this is what my Wednesday at 10 o'clock is like. Um, But the point is that the more dreamlike and imaginary the Day of Judgment seems to me, the less real it seems to me, which means the less I'm going to devote my actions to it without even realizing it, right? All of us will say we believe in the Day of Judgment. But how real hell seems to me, how real heaven seems to me, will dictate how much I dedicate myself to it. Because... Hunger is real to me. I'm going to dedicate myself to make sure I don't fall hungry, especially if I'm someone who's been hungry, right? If I'm someone who all my stuff has been taking care of my whole life because my parents or whatever has been taking care of me, then I'm not going to have that as much of a priority, right? So it's like he's saying your priorities have been lost. Okay. Okay, continue.
2: All right. To tread the crowded and dangerous path of the hereafter with neither guide nor companion is difficult, tiring, and strenuous. They're strenuous. The guides for the road are the learned men who are the heirs of the prophet, but the times are void of them now, and only the superficial are left, most of whom have been lured by iniquity and overcome by Satan.
0: Okay, now think about this. This is a thousand years ago, okay? So one of the signs of the coming of the end of times is that Allah is going to take away knowledge by taking away the scholars. Scholars, yeah. And he's saying this a thousand years ago, right? Man. So what can we say about today, SubhanAllah, so kind of right? Nuts. So what is he saying? <clears throat> if you try to do this without a guide, or if you try to do this alone, it's going to be really, really hard, mm. right? And this is the important point about the Sahaba, that they're called Sahaba, companions of the Prophet, peace him. So he's the guide, but they're also all doing it together, mm. right? So even when the guide has passed away, they're still together, mm. right? And so that's an important point about community. So think about our era, where community is completely broken down. Mm. Like, we might all go pray Eid together or, or do Joma together, if we go. Mm. But we're still all disconnected from each other. Right. right. And there aren't too many guides, or people are often skeptical of guides. So, and, in yeah. this
2: case, like, a guide would be, like, a teacher or someone yeah. that you look up to? or
0: Yeah. Okay. I think of a master mm. and an apprentice, that mm. type of relationship. And so, who are the guides? They are the heirs of the prophets, peace be upon them. So, mm. meaning the scholars. So, the scholars are the heirs of the prophets. Mm. He says, our age is void of them, only the superficial remain. Mm -hmm. So what is one way that knowledge is dissipating? The depth of knowledge is decreasing with each generation. Mm. So there might be the same number of scholars, but the depth of their knowledge just keeps decreasing and decreasing and Mm. decreasing. It becomes more and more shallow. Mm. Right? And Satan has mastery over most of them. That's very, very scary. He's saying this again a thousand years ago. There's uh, one of my favorite stories. Again... Is it true or not? Allah knows best, but the lesson is, is is really good. So, Abdul Qadir Jilani, who's one of the big figures of, of this era, he's about 100 years after, 150 years after Imam al-Ghazali. There's a famous story of him walking through, according to some narrations of forest, according to other narrations, a desert. Like, he's on a retreat. And this light appears before him, and this beautiful man walks up to him. And the beautiful man walks out of the light and says to him, I am Allah, do sajda to me. Okay? And Abdul Qadir Jilani says, uh, "A'udhu billah, you are not Allah, you are shaitan. And then shaitan says, yes, you are correct, your knowledge saved you. And then Abdul Qadir Jilani says, "A'udhu billah, it was not my knowledge that saved me, it was Allah that saved me. And then shaitan says, yes, you are correct again, but you should know that I've led 100,000 scholars astray because they thought their knowledge saved them. Wow. Yeah. And so that's the point here, that it is not your knowledge that is saving you. It is not your ibadah that is saving you. What does your knowledge and ibadah give you? It gives you clarity in your relationship with Allah. It fulfills your obligations to Allah. But it is Allah who is saving you. That's why we say in every khutbah, right? Whomever Allah guides, none can misguide. Whomever Allah lets astray, none can guide. It's not your knowledge that is guiding you. It is not the guide who is guiding you. So knowledge gives you
2: clarity? Is that what you said? Knowledge
0: should be giving you clarity. Okay. Right. And ibadah should also be giving you clarity. But
2: Allah is the ultimate
0: guide. Allah is the one who is guiding you. So, you may be guided through someone, but it's not the person who's guiding you. It is Allah who's guiding you. And that's something that's very easy to forget. Mm -hmm. Okay, continue.
2: All right. So, every every one of them was so wrapped up in his immediate fortune that he came to see good as evil and evil as good, so that the science of religion disappeared and the torch of the true faith was extinguished all over the
0: world. (laughs) He's saying this a thousand years ago. But what is he basically saying? All these scholars who are learning deen they got caught up in dunya. Mm. So over and over again in the Quran, it says, don't sell your these ayat for a small gain. Thamanan mm. qalila. Right? And this is, who is that really speaking to? It's speaking to the people of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Don't sell off your deen for worldly benefit. Okay. You know, like we talk about, like, celebrity scholars these days. It's so easy to focus on the finances rather than actually serving Allah. Mm-hmm. And the example I always give, as a reminder to myself, <coughs> that you've probably heard, is... Uh, In this one year in undergrad, I put a sign for the MSA on every single bulletin board of of every building of school. Mm -hmm. And for the first meeting, uh, something like 20 people showed up. Second meeting, zero. And so then I gave up. Mm -hmm. Second year, I'm thinking, should I try again? Okay, I'll try again. Yeah, a lot. I put up one sign on one bulletin board for a meeting that week, and like four people showed up. Okay. of those four people, one of those guys later became Muslim, who later then brought five other people to Islam over the course of his life. Maybe more. Right? And so it wasn't me. Right? It wasn't how much effort I put in. It was Allah Ta'ala made it happen for that. Right? So we put in the effort. And then Allah, it's like you show up to the battlefield, you're not the one who throws, Allah throws. And Allah is the one who makes it, uh, uh, decides whether or not it reaches the target. But it's very easy to fall into the trap of focusing on dunya. Mm. Especially if you feel like, you know, what if you fall hungry? Then you're kind of forgetting that Allah Ta'ala is the one who provides risk. Right? And it doesn't mean you should be negligent. Right? It doesn't mean you should just um, say, okay, Allah's going to take care of me because that's what happened with Maryam, assalam, but I mean the Sahaba worked. Even to the point that the, uh, uh, Abu Bakr was trying to work to pay for himself while he was Khalifa, and then they said, "No, no you've got to have a stipend. Hmm. Right? And Omar required his governors to earn a pay. Oh, it's all work, yeah. Yeah. You can do whatever you want with the money, but you have to collect pay. Okay. and so what happened as a result? If my focus becomes dunya, Mm. then I'm going to teach those things that are going to give me more wealth, as opposed to what I think people need to hear. So if a lot of people are going to show up for this type of class, then that's what I want to find myself just teaching over and over again. As opposed to, okay, you guys really need to hear this, even though it's bitter, Hmm. right? Because then if I start teaching according to what people want, then I'm teaching according to what their nafs wants, Mm, right? That's why celebrity scholars work. Because you're not paying for the knowledge, you're paying for the charisma, right? And then what happens with your nafs? Your nafs is always saying, feed me, okay? And then it reaches a point where... It's basically saying, you haven't fed me enough, and it's gonna tell you to feed into the haram. Okay. And then eventually it's gonna say the halal is not good. I don't like the halal, just keep feeding me the haram. And things start turning upside down. And that's what he's describing here. Hmm. Right? So you become a servant of the people rather than a servant of Allah Ta'ala. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's stop right here. Okay. And then we'll continue from this point, inshallah, next time. Subhanakallahum al Bahamut ilaha illa anta. نستغفرك am going to take a and